This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The third one I made like caught the algorithm and it got hundreds of thousands of views. And that's what TikTok is like. It's, it's universal content distribution. Like it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. If you make a good video, it'll catch. Just, just, that's just the way TikTok works. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I want to give a quick shout out here to Renana M, who recently left a review for the show on Apple Podcasts titled, This is My Go-To Podcast. They wrote, I feel like I go through seasons of podcasts, and this is my go-to now as I explore creative endeavors. Practical conversations around pain points with great guests, simple, motivating, and useful. Thank you for the podcast. Well, thank you, Renana M, for taking the time to leave a review. It means a lot to me personally, and it goes a long way to help the show grow as well. So if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts, please consider doing so, and it may get read here on the show. All right, this week we are finally doing it. We are finally venturing into the realm of TikTok, a platform I know next to nothing about. Today I'm talking with Chris Sutherland. Chris has 2 million followers on TikTok, 60,000 YouTube subscribers, 144,000 Instagram followers, and he's built that up since just January 2020. That is insane growth, and you may wonder, what was this guy doing before creating content? Well, that's interesting too, because it's probably not what you'd expect. Before Chris was a full-time content creator, he was a physics professor at USC, the University of Southern California. He even has a 4.9 out of 5 star rating on RateMyProfessors.com. And even though it may seem hard to connect the dots between professor and creator, there's actually more in common than you think. Like I'm in front of these students for like an hour, three times a week, just up there, like in, in front of this audience. And so it's, it's very much like a performance. As you probably already guessed, that is Chris. We'll get more from him here in a second. But the one thing I do know about TikTok is that it's on the cutting edge of the culture. Trends seem like they start on TikTok, so you really need to be up to speed on what's trending so you can be relevant on the platform. And apparently that wasn't a challenge for Chris. I think it was very natural because academia is just, it it just never really feels like a real job. I feel like getting a real job is part of what takes you away from that kind of youth culture. And because I never really got into that, I was just, 
naturally looking at the same Instagram meme pages and the same type of stuff on TikTok. Like I did that all through grad school and I just teaching a bunch of Gen Z kids didn't feel like I had to grow up or anything. So I just kept doing what I was doing. (laughs) I met Chris through a program I participated in with Maven. The Maven team are building a marketplace platform for cohort-based courses, online courses that are taught live by the instructors. I built a course with former podcast guests, Pat Flynn and Matt Gartland, on how to build an online course, which is very meta, I know. And full disclosure, I'm actually an investor in Maven. We were some of the first instructors ever on the platform, and Chris was building a course at the same time. I got to know him a little bit and couldn't believe how quickly he built such a large audience. I started making TikTok videos in like January 2020. I think I got on TikTok only a couple months before I started creating. But like after like maybe a week of just like filtering my For You page to get rid of like the dancing and and other stuff that like I just wasn't interested in, I was like totally hooked. Like by far the most addictive thing I've ever done or used. And this is when I was starting to get a bit tired of the typical teacher thing. And I decided, okay, I'm going to start making videos. Uh, I think the main focus I had was YouTube. And I was like, okay, I'll do TikTok too. Because one of my students was like, oh, you should do TikTok. Like, that's where it's at. The TikTok picked up really quick. So in this episode, we talk about Chris's path to becoming a collegiate professor, how humor helped him grow his TikTok audience so quickly, the differences between TikTok and Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts, why Chris left academia, and what's next for him now that he's a full-time creator. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me, say hello, and let me know that you're listening. But now, let's talk with Chris. So in reality, I always liked math. And I kind of thought I wanted to like, just do math when I was in, like, in high school. But I didn't really know that you could just do that. Like Neither of my parents went to college. like So... And then I was, then I found out about physics and I was like, okay, this is like math, but like useful (laughs) in some sense. So, and I, and then at the same time, I also knew like, I, I despised lab work, like with my hands, I was awful at it. I was just such a klutz. And so I knew I didn't want to do engineering. Like I knew I didn't actually want to build anything, but physics seemed like good application of math. And, And so I'm like, I like that. What are the options for somebody who wants to pursue physics? What is the typical set of like career paths? A lot of times people don't end up in physics after the degree. Usually like just looking back where my friends ended up, a lot of them are in software jobs, like full stack development. A lot of them ended up doing machine learning or data science, just because that kind of, a lot of times those companies will, will hire physics grads um, because they got the kind of right quantitative mindset and they just, sometimes they got to do like a programming boot camp, something like that. Sometimes in finance, a lot of physics grads go to grad school and then they usually filter out after grad school and they can't find a spot like permanently in academia. And they might do, they might do some research work for like a government lab, maybe. That's pretty much where people go. Why did you decide to pursue your PhD? Yeah. So again, in high school, I, th- I feel like because I was always really into like video games and I was always like playing competitive, like like multiplayer games and getting a PhD just seemed like the way it seemed like the, the final, like the way you would like win academia. And I, I feel like in high school, I just decided like I wanted to I want to win high academia. So I'm like, 
I'm going to get a PhD. And I just followed that track. Like I did really like physics. And and, and when I kind of got into it in undergrad, like I did a research internship and stuff. It was like, I was pretty into it. So I just decided to keep following that, that kind of goal I set for myself in high school, which is not the right way to do it, by the way. Um, but it's <laughs> what I did. Just take the goals you have for yourself as a 16 year old, never revisit them. Just keep doing them. <laughs> At what point did you did you think that academia was going to be the follow-on to getting the PhD? Because teaching itself seems like, you know, a very different career path than physics typically sets you out on. Yeah. Well, I always loved teaching and tutoring and stuff. Like I loved explaining things to people. Like I feel like I'm I'm decent at math and decent at physics, but like compared to some of the people I met, I wasn't great. So I, I did have to put in the effort to learn. And so making it easier for other people I always liked. And I kind of realized during my PhD that I was not going to be a, I'm not going to be able to be a researcher. Like it's, it just, I just wasn't good enough, not that interested. So yeah, I was like, okay, I would love to just get a straight teaching position. And that's what I did after the, after the PhD one became available. They're usually pretty rare just to get a straight teaching position and not have to go and do a postdoc and be like a star in your research field. So yeah, I was happy about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, I'm sure this just comes down to basic supply and demand, but I, I hear from people all the time that actually getting a job in academia as just a professor without doing research is really tough. Why is that? Yeah, well, it's tough whether you're doing research or not. It's it's tough all across the board. Like, there's just, I mean, the basic thing is there's like, you know, one or two physics professor jobs that'll open up at a at each college per year. And that's some, sometimes there's zero, one or two. And the, but then you look at a college like MIT, MIT will spit out at least 10 physics PhDs per year. So there's a clear discrepancy there, right? And not only that, that's just MIT. So like the people, the MIT PhD grads that stay in academia and try and get, that can't get jobs at the MIT level schools, then they'll try and get jobs at the lower level schools. Well, then what about the people that got PhDs at the lower level schools? They'll try and go lower and lower. And there's just this, this huge supply and demand problem. And that's why there's just not a lot of jobs. And there's, there's a lot of people with PhDs. And it seems like people who get the job, keep it like forever. Yeah, there's that too. Like there's just so many old profs that honestly suck that have tenure, which means you basically can't get fired anymore. You have total academic freedom and, and you're good. So this is already like 10 years after the PhD. And once you get tenure, so it's a very long, arduous road to get tenure. And so people kind of expect once you get tenure, that's for life. Well, you got your PhD and you got one of these rare roles as a lecturer that was in 2018. How did that feel to get one of those few jobs? It was awesome. And yeah, this job was not the tenure track route. It was the teaching track route. Only some schools hire just pure teachers to teach at their college. And the USC was one of them. Yeah, I was really happy about it. Because even those are very also in a lot of people want it. And I was just kind of lucky that they kind of knew me and that I had teaching experience and stuff like that. And I was super excited because this was kind of my end goal. Like when I got the PhD, I, I another goal that I wrote down for myself when I was like pretty young was like, I would love to teach a class, like a college classroom of physics. So I was pumped. It was a lot of work, but I was pumped. Is this one of the big lectures? Like, is this one of the freshman or sophomore classes that everybody takes and you have hundreds of kids in there? 
Yeah, that's right. Talk to me about your first couple of years teaching before this most recent year, which I assume was mostly Zoom based. Talk to me about that experience. I mean, I've always felt comfortable like in front of crowds and stuff. Like I've done like theater and things like that. I was always loved it. So that portion was that was like fun. It's kind of like a performance. And I loved the office hours. Students would come uh, would come to the office hours a lot and we'd I'd get to meet them and I feel like this is kind of where I developed the knowledge of like what Gen Z was like and where I was able to kind of build that like familiarity that helped me on on TikTok later. It was great meeting them. Like I was living in LA, wasn't from there originally. It was great to meet these students and like interact with them. Some of them I'm 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 friends with now, especially in the classes that had like mostly older students. You said one hour class three times a week. Did you only have like one class or how many classes were you having hour long classes with three times a week? It was like two to three classes uh, per semester. And then there's like all the other time where you're like making the assignments and, and making the lectures and coordinating the TAs and office hours and all that extra time as, as well. But actually live. Yeah. I'm trying to back this into what I'm going to ask questions about of like how you spend your time, because at first when you're just a teacher, you know, you have your I'm starting to understand you have your lectures, you have office hours, you have coordinating with TAs, you have grading. What other things did you have to spend a significant amount of time on? in that role? Preparing the lectures, like putting all the contents. Luckily I had older professors in the department that were, that were really keen on teaching, share their material with me. But that's usually like the first year of teaching is a huge amount of work compared to the next year. Because the way teaching in academia works, right? Especially physics that's been the same for a hundred years is you just teach the, almost the exact same thing again. And if you're good, you'll update your methods or whatever. But so once you've done it once, that first year was a ton of work. But in my last year, for example, I didn't have to spend much time outside the classroom besides just like all the stuff was already prepared. And so I would just the lecture time and the TA coordinating time and office hours and whatever faculty meetings and stuff. That was kind of it. So first year, ton of work, but exciting because you got this gig and this is what you wanted to do. Second year, a little bit less work on the preparation side, still enjoying the the role itself. Yeah, there was always like some problems that I had with it, but in general, yeah. You mentioned uh, in these office hours, you were starting to connect with Gen Z and learn a little bit more about that culture. What were some of the things that you learned that were either counter to your expectations or you just wouldn't have expected? I wouldn't say I had much expectations going in. They were kind of, it's kind of what I expected, I guess. I guess one thing, um, maybe Gen Z gets a bad rap for being too much like on their phones all the time or something like that. But from what I experienced, like they're also like, they're extremely hard working. At least the people at, at the school I taught at were and very, very smart. I wouldn't say there was too much that, that was outside my expectations. They seemed very grown up, I guess. I feel like that's kind of what we hear anytime someone gets to know the, the younger generation more. They're like, actually, they're more smart and applied than we expect. Yeah. They're just different from us in some way. And that's why sometimes like we other a different generation. Yeah. I don't even feel different than them at this point. Like, I feel like those those first three years, like those three years, I just became like, because it's part of being a good teacher is being like relatable, right? Or like. You, you, you need to kind of step down to the level or not even step down, just just enter their level. And because I, I was always focused on being a good teacher. Yeah, I just feel like it's 
t- totally a part of me now. So I'm, I am Gen Z lives within me. After a quick break, Chris and I talk about how he built his audience on TikTok so quickly. And later we talk about Instagram reels, YouTube shorts, and more. So stick around and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Hey, welcome back. Chris got started on TikTok in just January of 2020, but almost immediately, literally with his third video, his account took off and received millions of views. So I wondered if it was just pure dumb luck or if Chris had spent some time thinking about his approach before he began posting videos. The first two videos didn't get that much, but because uh, like, I was connected to all my former students on like Instagram and other stuff like that. And so when I made that first video, I shared it there. And so it got like an okay amount of views, like in the thousands, but it didn't really pick up. And then just the third one, the third one I made like caught the algorithm and it got hundreds of thousands of views. And that's what TikTok is like. It's, it's universal content distribution. Like it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. If you make a good video, it'll catch just, just, that's just the way TikTok works. 
And so that one did. And then, yeah, I remember like, I, I was so strange to me as someone that's never had something go popular on social media. I was totally blown away by it. And I responded to every comment on, on it. It was, it was like thousands of comments. I was up all night responding to every single one. And from there on, then it was just like, oh, okay, so TikTok's kind of working. So, I, and then it just, almost every other video after that worked. And obviously I got better at knowing what worked. That's insane. There's like no creator I've ever talked to. That's like, yeah, the first two things weren't good. But then from the third one on, like it just worked. <laughs> like how you got to say more, like how did you even take the input of like, okay, this video worked. How did you know how to do the next one and the next one? I actually read these interesting books before I was, before I decided to start doing YouTube and TikTok, like I read Influence and I read um, some, some other old marketing books that were super interesting. And I think that was kind of sitting around in my subconscious, like, and I was also a bit neurotic about it. Like when the third video did well, I, I kind of studied it and I was like, what, what did I do in this video? And I just like copied a lot of the things. That's where this red shirt came from was I was wearing a red shirt in that video and I was like, okay, well, I want people to recognize that person that had that popular video again. So I'm going to wear the exact same thing. I'm going to use the same color text. I am going to just try and use the same type of, I just tried to copy that video, but make it slightly different because that video did well. So let me just not overthink it. Let me just copy it. And I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be like too algorithmic about it or anything, but like I, I had at that point decided that I wanted to make content and have it be, like popular. So I did want to try and at least game the algorithm like a little bit. Why did you make the decision that you wanted to make content and you wanted it to be popular? I, I think uh, as I was getting tired of the teaching thing, I was like, this is not the future. You can't, you can't change things from within the system. It sucks. I need to, but this is like where my whole career has been. So how do I transition into something where I can make money as well? And also be part of something that is like the, the, it's mainly like, how do I be part of the future of education, but at the same time make money? So that's like, that's why I decide, okay, YouTube videos and TikTok. And then why do I want it to be popular? Well, I want to be able to make a living off this eventually. So it just seemed like, and I was reading a bunch of stuff too. Like I was reading like creator economy stuff and there, I was just fascinated by the whole thing. I'm like, this is so cool. And I want to be a part of it. Well, and the other reason that, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you about this is most of the people we have on this show broke through years ago. Like the reason they're popular today is because they've been doing it for 10 years. And you started this January of 2020. Like we're just beyond a year here. Uh, and it's important for people to know that like these models exist and it's still open. Yes. To them. So January 2020, was that the beginning of your third year or the end of your second year? End of my second year. But that's a, that's a great point because I remember before I started, that's why I was so amazed when that first video did well. Cause I just, I just, I guess I had this like underlying assumption that video was like, you couldn't break into it now. Like it was already, uh, there was popular YouTubers and you weren't one of them and you never will be. But even my YouTube blew up just randomly. Like I was making videos that I didn't even think they were that good. And all of a sudden I had 50,000 subscribers and it all happened very quickly. So even YouTube, which takes more, I would say, is not as universally distributed as, as TikTok is still early days in, in all video stuff. Was that driven by uh, one or two videos that had a breakout too? I think here's the way I think YouTube works. And I kind of know, I took like a little course from a guy that 
kind of knows about it as well. Not not quite a course, but I just kind of talked to a guy that kind of knows about how the algorithm works. He runs like 20 YouTube channels. So TikTok is like you make one video and if it's good, it'll catch and you can get more followers than that. And then it's likely your other videos will do slightly better, but they still have to be good videos if they if you really want them to do well. And then YouTube, YouTube is like a kind of a slow burn. You make you you make a bunch of videos and if you keep doing that after a while, yeah, an old one can blow up out of nowhere. And that never happens on TikTok. Like you'll never have an old video blow up out of nowhere. But if you build like this catalog of YouTube content, it's like you're flat for a long time and then all of a sudden it'll it'll pick up. Whereas TikTok it can be um much more like you could you could pick up right at the beginning. At least it's like that for now. Maybe it's just because it's a new platform. I don't know. So where does YouTube play in your strategy now? Because your your Twitter has a huge following, your Instagram has a huge following. You haven't posted on Instagram in months though. And YouTube, it seems like you've slowed down too. So how are you prioritizing these platforms where any one of those platforms in the following you have, a lot of people listening to the show would say, just like, give me that. If I had that, I would have yeah. everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's true. So I guess as I continue to make content, like I kind of realized like what I actually like doing and what I don't like doing. And so I'm a bit in this in this phase where I'm trying to figure out what it is I really want to do because when I, like this, this ties back good to the PhD thing, you know, I decided to get a PhD when I was in high school and just blindly followed that for 10 years of my life. Now I'm I want to be a bit more intentional with what I'm with what I'm building and now I'm not just I guess I was just kind of focused on blind growth on TikTok for a while now, but as you might have noticed like I'm like I decided to take a hiatus on Sutherland Fizz and now I'm post- posting on Sutherland Crypto. I'm trying to be a bit more thinking about what I want to do long term. So I don't know if I want to continue making YouTube videos even. I could. I think I could and I think I could sustain myself from it. There's a lot about making YouTube videos I don't like though. I feel like sometimes I don't have the attention span. I love like there's making the short videos. I love making a lot of short videos. Help me understand that time commitment. Like, what does it look like to create a video for TikTok? So for TikTok, for me, a lot of TikTok creators are different. But for me, sometimes it's like, I'll be watching TikTok and be like, oh, that's a great thing. I can, I know, I, I can make my own spin on that very easy. And it'll take me 30 seconds, boom, post it. And sometimes those literally like 30 seconds to a minute videos will get millions of views. And then other times, like I have a notepad that where I have all my TikTok ideas. It has like 600 ideas that I still haven't used. And that are just constantly updating where I'll hear a sound. And so that's kind of a bit of work, but I don't know. It's hard to put a time on that. And then when I'm making daily vids, at least when I was on Southern Fizz, I'd be like, okay, I at least want to make a couple of vids a day. So I'll, I'll just grab my phone and, and look through my idea pads. And sometimes it'll make, take an hour to do a video. Sometimes it's a bit more of a struggle trying to get it right. Sometimes it's more effortless, just be like five minutes just to get it all perfectly right. So it was like a couple hours a day when I was making TikToks a lot, plus all the research, I'm doing air quotes, um, <laughs> put, putting stuff into my notepad every so often, watching a lot of TikTok, though I, I wouldn't really call that work, but it, it did help. You mentioned like, you'll be flipping through the feed and you'll see, oh, I can make a fun spin off of that. For people who aren't familiar with TikTok, like, how does that work? Why do you decide what videos you do to remix or spin off of? Yeah. So, okay. On TikTok, there's, I would say there's a couple ways that I do content. 
there's stuff where I'll just literally sit in front of the camera and talk. And that's not really based off anything. That's just pure personality. And those videos will, will commonly do well, I think, because it's kind of like, you know, an intimate conversation, especially during the pandemic. I don't know if you guys have experienced this because you're young little bakas, but when someone like went to Harvard or MIT and they talk about their college years, they'd be like, oh, when I was in college in Boston or when I was like, yeah, I went to college in Boston. Just say you went to Harvard, bro. Just say you went to MIT. Just shut up. The other one is there's always trends on TikTok. And it's not always the trends that are listed on like the front page of TikTok. Like some, it's just by watching TikTok, you'll see a lot of creators play off a certain sound that there's like a template. It's basically like everyone's using the same template for the, for a video. I can't think of any examples off my head, but I'm sure if you if you've been on TikTok, you know what I'm talking about. And they'll be like, "Oh, my my physics professor content. I have a perfect idea that fits into this template in this sound." So I'll just do my spin of that. It's like people almost expect it. When, when a trend starts going around TikTok with a certain sound and a certain trend, it's like you expect each creator that does their own, that has their own thing to do their interpretation of that trend. So that's what I would do. And then other times there's just sounds that I love. Like they're either so hilarious or so funny that like I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a completely new idea to do with it. Professor, how is this useful in real life? It's not. Why do you think I'm here? Somebody help me. So it's kind of like those two things. Sometimes just me talking to the camera about some random thing that's like kind of funny or maybe it's like a bit of a meme. And then the other one's like just doing, just which I think is the main TikTok thing, like doing a trend, hopping onto one of these trends, so, which sometimes you could duet or stitch people. I do that sometimes. And then the third thing is like, I just find so many of the sounds on there like hilarious or... I just feel like I have my own new idea to work on. How does Instagram Reels compare? Like it, when it went launched, people were like, oh, this is just TikTok. But like, is it really? It sucks so bad. Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts suck so bad. And this is not just like for someone that maybe I'm biased. Obviously, I'm biased, right? But yeah, they just, they don't realize that the main the, the lifeblood of TikTok are the trends and the sounds and the way you can use sounds other people are using, the way you copy trends from other people, the way you could duet and stitch people. And the comments, like the comments are 50% of the experience on TikTok because they're so funny. And Instagram and YouTube shorts just completely lack that. Like the last thing I want to do is go on YouTube shorts and make a, make a video. It just doesn't, it's not, it doesn't work. It's not flawless. And the algorithms suck compared to TikTok. Like TikTok's algorithm is like, it is incredible. Yeah, it's so addicting. It's crazy. And now when I try and go on YouTube and watch a video, I'm just like, these videos, this, this website is recommending me. It's like garbage. Like these engineers need to step up their game. <laughs> I've watched my fiance try to do an Instagram reel and it took her like an hour to do a very basic thing. Like she knew what she wanted to do and it took oh, her really? like an hour to let the tool, like for the tool to let her do what she was trying to do. So I was wondering yeah. if like the creation was easier on TikTok. What they're good for is for creators that make TikToks finding further distribution. Like I stopped doing this, but when I was uploading just straight from TikTok, even with the watermarks and everything to Instagram Reels, my Instagram page was blowing up, just copy pasting. Same on YouTube Shorts. Why did you stop doing that? Uh, I just got lazy. <laughs> um, I just, and this was also when I was kind of thinking like, 
I was trying to be more intentional about what I was doing. Like, do I want to just keep growing on Instagram for no reason? Do I want to just keep becoming more popular just straight based off my personality? Like there are certain trade-offs with that. Like if you keep doing that, there are going to be some things you can't do. You'll get bigger brand deals and, and stuff and you can do things like that. But you might not be able to cultivate like an interesting discussion around a specific thing that you find interesting because that's not what it's about. It's about you. There's like a fame element too. Like if you get super big and stuff, like like I got recognized in public a couple of times. Like I don't want to have to, me personally, though I love, I love it when people reach out and be like, thank you so much for your videos. Like I love that. I don't want to have to worry about like where I'm living and like, where I'm going and being worried about things like that. If you just keep growing without thinking about things like that, then, and you, and you tailor all your content just for pure growth, that's what's going to happen. And you're going to have to live with that. That's so interesting that you're protecting future optionality at the expense of near-term growth that you know you could have because it's not necessarily what you want long-term. That's it. And I think every creator, that becomes a thing eventually, especially if they're making, if you start off as like a, pure real estate creator that's like, then you probably won't worry about that. But if if there's a lot of personality in your videos, which TikTok is is huge on, personality like shines through there, then that's something you're going to have to deal with. And yeah, I'm trying, like I said, trying to be a bit more intentional than like young Chris was instead of just blindly following. It's like, what, what do I really want out of life, et cetera? When we come back, I ask Chris if he ever got in trouble with his employer for being a viral TikTok creator, and we dig a little bit deeper into the economics of making money on TikTok right after this. Welcome back to my conversation with Chris Sutherland. In preparing for this interview, I watched a lot of Chris's TikTok videos. In one video, he says that the dean of the college found his TikTok, and I had to know if that actually happened. No, it never happened. Uh, Strangely, so I've, I've quit now. Yeah, I've quit now. And so I can like talk about this more. Uh, like, okay, they did contact me once, but it was, it was, I'll talk about that in a bit, but literally no one talked to me about it. Like only my students, none of my colleagues brought it up. Not that I talked to my colleagues that much because we were, everything was remote basically once I started and, and there was faculty meetings that I didn't go to and no one higher up ever talked to me about it. I think the USC athletics account reached out to me once. It was like, Hey, do you want to do a collab? Oh my um, gosh. And I was just, I was just too lazy. I was like, no, no, I don't really want to do anything. I just like kind of making my own videos. So, but there was one time, and I think I made a video about this where on my syllabus, I made a, a joke like, cause on syllabus, you always, as a professor, you list like where you be contact, where you can be contacted in your office hours and stuff. And, and like, as a joke, I listed like office hours, you know, office room. And then I would list all my social medias. And then at the end I listed like only fans and then I said, upon request, like, if you want my only thing, you can ask me for it. <laughs> and then I got an email from, from someone and I don't want to get in any trouble or anything. Actually, there, he was super nice about it. Like, he was very understanding. He was like, um, yeah, can you take that off? Because we don't want like parents seeing that and getting the wrong idea. And I was like, he was like, I actually study comedy. So I understand comedy. I'm like, between you and me, it's like, you study comedy, you probably don't understand anything about it. But but he was like, I get that it was a joke and, and everything. I was like, so he was super nice. But yeah, that's the only interaction. Otherwise, it was just complete silence. I can't believe that. I don't know if that's they were probably a sign. Just, I wonder what they were doing. Like, were they just waiting for me to slip up or like, 
where they, they had just to like, known. we don't want to touch this with like a 10 foot pole. Like had to have known, but I mean, you have, Oh, they definitely knew there's no way they didn't know. They're probably waiting for your rate. My professor to go below like a four, six. Mm. And then this would have been, this would have been the straw. Yeah. I mean, I guess they just didn't know what to do. Like, I don't think they wanted to reach out because I did have a bit of like an adversarial like aspect to my TikTok about the college. And I guess there was no reason for me to, to, to stop me, even though maybe there's one or two videos that were a bit on the edge. Like, yeah, so they just let it run its course. But it had to have felt like a risk at the time. And I'm sure other people listening to this right now, like they may think that their content is a risk to their job as well. So how did you weigh that risk? Totally. It did. It did feel, I remember, I kind of forget now, but I remember when I was first starting, it did feel like a huge risk. And I just, it was like, a, I just did a risk analysis. Like what are the potential upsides of this? And potential upsides is I can have a career doing something much better than teaching at a college. And the potential downsides is I get fired, but I still have a PhD. So I was kind of thinking, of, I was thinking of it like that. But near the beginning, I was more careful with it. But when it went, it was basically like the, the more I grew, the more I took more risks because I was like, okay, if something really bad does happen here, then I have at least something to, like at the TikTok creator fund was paying out and YouTube was paying out. Like I have something there. What's the TikTok creator fund? So TikTok, I think committed to giving out something like a billion dollars to its creators over the next three years, some, something like that. Wow. And you just get paid for how many views you get. So, and it's non-advertising. They're just saying like, we're actually going to incentivize creators to make really great content without feeling like they need to use advertising in any way. And we're yep. going to pay them for that. That's right. I wouldn't say it's that much, but yep, that's right. And I love that model, by the way, it could, it could use some work for sure, but I, that model was really attractive to me, especially compared to what YouTube does. Another aspect of that model that's interesting is the fact that it didn't matter what content you were making. Like it just, which is, can also be bad, like, because then you just get like stupid prank videos and like bad stuff, getting a lot of views and, and hence money. Um, but like on YouTube, the CPM is dependent on like if you're a finance creator, you'll make way more per thousand views than you would as, in, as a prank video. Can you give any type of estimate for if I want to become a TikTok creator and get paid from the creator fund, at what level do I have to be for that to be meaningful? You know, like what so do I need like, for like 500 bucks a month or a thousand bucks a month? Yeah. Just to get in, you have to have a certain, I think only 10,000. It's pretty easy to get in just 10,000 followers or, or I think, um, which seems like a, a lot, but on TikTok, it's, it's really, it's much easier to get there than it is on other platforms. And you need something, a certain, I think like a hundred thousand views in the past 30 days or something, which also seems like a lot, but again, it's much easier to get that on TikTok than it is like on YouTube. So there's that. When it was really going good, I think like a million views was like 30 bucks, which doesn't seem like a lot. So you would need, you could make like, if you're doing like a, if you're like a TikTok creator like me that was making a lot of content, you would get like a million views a day. So you could do the math. It's going down though, because as more creators enter the program, I think because it's only just a fixed pool right. of money. It's getting distributed more. So you're going to have to be pretty damn popular getting million views a day. You're going to need to getting millions of views a day to make a living off it. What is, what is the typical path for monetization for TikTokers outside of that? Because like I'm coming from the standpoint of a lot of people I look at, they're doing information products, things like that. And 15 second 
or 60 second videos don't necessarily lend to that pathway. Brand deals pay a lot on TikTok. So you can get a, you can, you can do a 30 second video and for like a brand, I'll pay you 5,000 bucks if you have over a million followers. So that's uh, if, if you play your cards right. So that's one way a lot of creators do it. There's the creator fund. A lot of TikTokers try and filter their audience to YouTube because YouTube is easier to make money. It's better for making money. I wouldn't say easier. It's better for making money though. So yeah, on TikTok, it's basically brand deals and the creator fund. Brand deals can, can be a huge part of it. You could, you could just live off, like you could do very well with just brand deals on TikTok. What's your plan? You now have two TikTok channels. I'd, I'd love to hear why you forked into a second channel as opposed to going forward with just the one. But what's your strategy? Yeah, so my plan is Southern Fizz kind of became like 99% personality, like 1% educational. Like it's, it's really just about, it was very much about me, which was fun. It's like 15 seconds of fame. It was great. And maybe I, like I might start making videos again there, but it, it's like I've been really interested in crypto and I kind of want to make the transition from physics, from education into crypto. I find it fascinating. I've been interested in it for a while. I love it. A lot of things I've been reading recently, like I, I've I've read a, a lot of finance books over the past two years, things about stock market crashes. And a lot of physicists get interested in finance because there's lots of cool math, like quant, quantitative analysts do like lots of cool things. A lot of physicists end up working in that field. And so I, get, I was kind of interested in it, not from a perspective to make a lot of money, but just like the structure of it and, and all the bad things about it. Like if you look at my content on Sutherland Fizz, a lot of it's talking about how bad the education system is. Well, this is very true for a lot of systems in our society and fin finance is one of them for sure. I feel like that's what kind of attracted me to it. And uh, crypto to me is a solution. It has tons of problems right now as well, for sure. Like it's producing a lot of problems, but ultimately I genuinely see crypto as a solution in the same way I see edu new educational tech platforms a solution to traditional education. So I want to kind of, that's where I'm at. Like if I was, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm making another 10 year decision in my life. And that is, I want to spend the next 10 years in crypto and, and education and whatever combination I can do with them. And it was hard to do that on Sutherland Fizz because the fact is a lot of people don't care about crypto there. And did you test it? Did you do some crypto videos? There I tested it a little, a little bit, but the thing is because it's, it's so heavily about me. The comment section it becomes something that's not really productive. And it's too hard to filter at that point. I have so many, and it's not even like I want to filter it. Like it's, it was built around something totally different. And so I want to kind of respect the people that followed me for a certain reason and watched me and say, hey, if you're interested, I'm going to be over here now. And the people that are interested can go and the people that aren't cannot go. And I feel bad. I know, I know some of them, like I got all these super heartfelt messages that I was making these videos over the past year, like, even people like dying on their, on, 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 like, like on their deathbeds. So you're like, thank you so much for making these videos. The only thing that's making me laugh these days, like, like really heart touching stuff that made me feel bad quitting. But at the same time, like you kind of want to stop before it gets old. Right. I've been kind of, I was making the same educational like jokes and stuff like that as a professor, like for, for a year straight, I was making like three videos a day, a lot. And I was just feeling a bit like maybe it's, you know, it's better to just kind of, and especially quitting as a professor, it's kind of a natural end point. And maybe I'll come back as like a season two and things will be different in some way. 
but yeah, that's where I'm at. Crypto. I'm teaching a course on Maven. Maven.com, as 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 you know, on Crypto 101. So that's a lot of my times going into that. I've been really interested in crypto, crypto venture. Um, I'm talking with some people like talking to some some venture capital people that are really into crypto. So I'm interested in that. Maybe I can help some way with my Southern Crypto account, teach people how to liquidity provide on Uniswap with a short little TikTok. Anyways, that's a long-winded answer. Well, the new account, Sutherland Crypto, has, I think I saw over 100,000 followers already. And obviously pushing some from the Sutherland Fizz helps a lot. But someone listening to this who's not on TikTok yet, and they're saying, this guy blew up in two years. What would you recommend they do if they're just getting started to give themselves the best shot? Find like the niche. I feel like that's the most like common advice. But I feel like a big reason why I blew up was because I was an actual professor making funny videos, right? Like that was a huge part of my appeal. The fact that this actual professor was making this content that you just don't see professors make. So if you could do something like that, like it, like what, like if you're, um, I don't know, there's something interesting about you, like go off of that and read, read, a yeah, read some like old marketing books, like read influence, read, um, what's this other book I read? Selling the Invisible. There was a couple others I read that were like, just, they were so interesting, like from a psychological perspective. And you'll start to understand like why certain content does well and what, what the whole kind of underlying thing about it is. But if you only read one, read, read that book Influence because it's really good. Who's it by? I'm sure you know. Robert Cialdini. Yeah. Yeah. That one's really good. And yeah, just have fun with it. I mean, I've also like, as time has gone on, I've had like old high school friends reach out to me. They're like, yo, I've seen your TikTok. Like, congrats, man. Like, and then some of them be like, yo, how do I do this? And be like, yo, just start making videos, like play on these trends. And for some of them, it doesn't work out. And I feel like it's not for everyone. Like you don't have to, one of my friends was like, man, one of my friends said to me, he's like, you've been making TikToks before TikTok was even a thing. Like it was, it was felt like a very natural fit to my personality. I've always been like a class clown. I've always loved drama and theater and stuff like that. So if it doesn't feel like fun to you, don't do it. It's TikTok. It was like, inc- has been incredibly fun to me. It was so much fun. So yeah, there's other things you can do. Like maybe you can make more serious, long YouTube videos. Like that's not for me, but maybe it's for you. Well, I don't know if TikTok is in my future, but I certainly feel more comfortable with how I would get started if I wanted to. I can't get over just how quickly Chris built his audience on TikTok over just the last year and a half. This universal content distribution method of TikTok that he mentioned seems like it makes for a much more inviting platform than most. And even though $30 per 1 million views from the creator fund doesn't sound like much, if Chris was hitting 1 million views per day, that's $210 per week and $840 per month just from doing what he was already doing. And if you double that or triple that, you're talking about pretty meaningful revenue pretty quickly. If you want to learn more about Chris, you can follow him at Sutherland Crypto on TikTok or at Sutherland Fizz on Twitter. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Chris for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. You may not know that I send an email every week with each episode to tell the story of how I booked that guest. People seem to really like it, and you can get that email by subscribing to my newsletter at jklaus.com slash emails. A link to that is also in the show notes. 
If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.